0: verses 1 through 21. These are the words of the living God. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, which is powerful, which is convicting, which is true. As we look to it today, I pray that You would remove all distractions and help us to stay focused. Help us to know better Your will for our lives. Reveal it to us. Convict our hearts. Change us and strengthen us by it. All for your kingdom and for your glory and for your name's sake. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's give a little background to our discussion today. Uh, the people of Israel have celebrated the Passover feast that we talked about last week, and God came and did just as He said He was going to do, and He killed all the firstborn. Of Egypt. Every house that did not have blood smeared on the doorpost and on the lintel had a victim. Uh, there was not one house in which somebody was not left dead. It did not have this blood shed on the doorpost and the lintel. After this, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were quick to tell the Israelites to get out of there. As a matter of fact, they urged them to leave. They said, Get out of here before we're all dead. Uh, and so they do. Uh, but it's not long before Pharaoh and the Egyptians change their minds and they decide that they want to recapture Israel and bring them back into Egypt, and to bondage, into bondage, so that they can serve them. But this is all part of God's plan to get glory over Pharaoh. God wants to make an example out of Pharaoh and his armies. And so they chase them all the way down to the shores of the Red, uh, of the Red Sea, and this is where God... Miraculously parts the waters and Israel travels through on dry ground. And then the Egyptians follow. And God looks down while they're in the midst of the Red Sea. And he throws them into confusion and their chariots begin to get stuck. And God decides that he is going to destroy the whole army. So he lets the two walls of water down, drowning Pharaoh and his army. Israel stands on the other side in. Victory looking at their defeated enemies washing up on the seashore. God has literally put the enemies of Israel under their feet. And now Israel will travel with Moses as their leader down to Mount Sinai where God will reveal his law to them, his will for their lives. God has redeemed his people from the bondage of Egypt <clears throat> and he has defeated all of her enemies. He's given her a new destiny and a new hope with the promise of a new land to dwell in, and he will now give them a law to instruct them on how they are to live. God has proved to Egypt and to all of her gods that he is the God of gods and that the Hebrews are his people. If you remember, God made a promise long ago. Well, we didn't go over it in our study, but back in Genesis 15, God promised Abraham that one day his people would go into bondage in a foreign land. But later, God would judge that nation and he would bring his people out with many great possessions. And God has done just that for Israel here in our story today. Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the covenant-keeping God. He is the God of Israel. And it is on the basis of who he is and what he has done that he now commands his people to keep his law. And here we see God reveal a new covenant to uh, the people of Israel, which is really just an extension of an old one. If you remember uh, in our study, you've been following along, God made a promise back in Genesis, in the garden at the beginning, that said that he would undo wickedness and corruption and put it underfoot at the hands of his people. And he has been doing that. And he continues to do it. When Abraham came on the scene, God promised to make his descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and to give them a land to dwell in. And from that land, God would extend righteousness and peace out into the world. But while Abraham's people were in Egypt, God has formed them into a nation. It is a nation of people numbering uh, upwards in uh, in the upwards of 2.5 million people. And those people are now on their way To the land that God has promised to give them, and while they are on their way there to inherit it, God gives them a law to live by. So you see, God's keeping that original promise that we've talked about to exterminate evil in the world through a people that He has set apart for this very purpose. It's on the basis of that very covenant that God appeals to Israel here on Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, excuse me. If you look back in verse two, He says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is, I am Yahweh. I am the uh, covenant-keeping God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God with this name is reminding Israel of who he is and what he has done. He says, it's on the basis of who I am and what I have done for you that you are now to obey me. This is to say God appeals to his people By grace. I don't know if you picked up on that. But here we have the giving of the law to God's people, and he begins with grace. He begins with the covenant. He begins with the promise. He says it's on the basis of who I am and what I've done, on who I am and what I've done, that I now command you to keep this law. And that is the first thing that I want to point out for us today here in our sermon. God's law is never divorced from his grace, and his grace is never divorced from his law. And this is crucial. This is a fundamental uh, concept for you to understand if you are a Christian sitting here today. God does not come to you on the basis of what you have done. He comes to you based upon what he has done. You start with God in a relationship of grace. It has always been this way from the very beginning. Nobody gets into a relationship with God apart from His grace. Everybody begins with grace. Nobody starts with law. That is, by doing what God says and working their way into the kingdom of God. Nobody gets into a relationship with God by virtue of what they have done, but rather God starts a relationship with you by His grace, and He tells you then to obey Him based on that grace. He says, I'm the one who delivered you, now obey my voice. All right? And it's the same for us. Paul, towards the end of his letter to the Romans, says this very thing. After he gets done unpacking the gospel of the grace of God and all of its implications for the life of the believer, he says, now be a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... This is Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul looks back on the gospel of the grace of God and all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and he says, in view of this mercy, in view of all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, now obey me. Be a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is to say, obey the will of God for your life. It is your spiritual Worship. That is to say, it's how we are to respond to God. It's our its our reasonable service. It's the only logical thing that you would do now in response to all that God has done for you is serve Him. Brothers and sisters, God says to us today the same thing that He said to Moses and Israel on Mount Sinai. In view of all I have done for you, look back on all that I have done for you, how I drowned all of your enemies In the midst of the Red Sea, I put them under your feet, literally, and I've brought you out from the bondage of your enemies. Now serve me. And doesn't he say the same thing to us in Christ? God has delivered us from this present world that is now perishing, which can be symbolically referred to as Egypt. And he has brought us through the waters of the Red Sea, which is signified by our baptism, He has made us to stand on dry ground, having defeated all of our enemies on the cross for us, sin, Satan, and death. And now he says, obey me. We are those who are standing on the shores of the Red Sea, having been redeemed from the bondage of our former lives and out of this world that is perishing into a new world that God is giving to us in Christ Jesus. He is leading us now into the promised land. Friends, today we are in this wilderness wasteland that we sometimes refer to as life. And while we are here, we are to obey Him. <clears throat> he's, he's given us His law to, to live by, and we're not to treat it as some trite thing. The law of God is not to be divorced from the life of the believer. You say, but oh, th- th- that, was, that was then, Pastor Chris. This is now. You know that, that was back in the Old Testament, that law. We're not under law anymore. We're under grace. Wrong. If, if you've heard the, the text that says we're under grace now and not under law explained in that way, it's an improper application of that text. What it means now to be under grace and not under law uh, is that you are now living in a day in which Jesus has forgiven all your sins. God has forgiven you through Him, who, by the way, kept the whole law perfectly, And now, He has given you life through His Spirit so that you can now obey the law. The only difference now um, is that God's Spirit is being poured out in a greater measure upon a greater number of people, whereas then it was concentrated among one people in Israel, the covenant people of God, of which we have now been made a part. (laughs) See, so it all fits together. So as to the question... um, whether we are to obey the law of God or not, the answer is yes. Yes, you are to obey the law of God. You say, okay, Pastor Chris, well then which laws should we keep? Well, there's a good summary of them right here for us in the Ten Commandments. That is what the Ten Commandments are. They are a summary of the moral law of God. We read that this morning together in our Confession. Uh, every other law that we see throughout the Old Testament, in, for instance, in Exodus chapter 21, 22, and 23, and throughout, uh, those particular laws there are referred to as case laws. Those are just further expansion, expansions and applications of the ten laws that we see right here. This is to say the rest of the law of God unpacks these ten for us. It shows us how to apply them in our society and in our relationships with one another and with God uh, the Proverbs are a perfect example of this. The Proverbs are just applications of the law of God to a particular life situation. What the writers of the Proverbs have done is they have taken the law of God and they have meditated on it and they have um, gleaned principles from it and they, have, and, and they are now applying them uh, to their life situation, which is wisdom. That's taking the law of God and the principles contained therein and applying them to your life. And that is what we are to continue to do with the law of God. Uh, we are to uh, discern what God's will for us is in the law. There's principles and patterns that are laid down there to guide us into what is right and what is good and what is holy and just in the sight of God. And we are to study God's word so that we can make decisions based upon those biblical principles, patterns, and examples. This is what it means for us to have the mind of Christ. But you say, wait a minute, Pastor Chris, we don't keep all the laws, do we? I mean, we don't, we don't go down there and offer up sacrifice at the temple anymore, right? Right. And that is because those ceremonial laws were all pointing to something greater. They were pointing to Jesus Christ. All the ceremonial laws are a shadow of the greater substance, and that substance is Jesus Christ. Um. All of the laws concerning the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifice, they are all now fulfilled in Jesus through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation. He has fulfilled them, and he does fulfill them. Jesus is now our high priest. There's the priesthood. He has offered up the one sacrifice for sins in himself, and the church is his temple in which he now dwells. So it's not as if these laws have been done away with, but we can say that they are continuing to be kept through Christ and the church. And you say, what about all the civil laws? All the, uh, the case laws in the Old Testament? Well, again, we have to understand that we're living in a different historical epoch, um, some things have changed as a result of the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Namely, he's seated on, he's seated on the throne and he's reigning as Lord of all. He is the King of all the world. <clears throat> so we have to take those laws and apply them according to our particular redemptive historical situation in which we are living. Those laws that, that applied particularly to one group of people in one land with one particular form of government, namely a theocracy have to be expanded on according to the redemptive era in which we are now living. Christ is now seated on the throne as king over all the world. There's no longer just one people in one land with one particular form of government, but God is bringing all of the governments of the world into subjection to himself through the preaching of the gospel. And again, there are still guidelines and principles in the civil law by which our lands and our civil leaders are to be governed. They are all accountable to Christ. He is king. So the law of God stands. It remains. Uh, But with respect to these ceremonial laws and these civil laws that we have mentioned, they are being kept now in different ways in accordance with the changes that have taken place in redemptive history. Now, what are we to make of these Ten Commandments? Well, I think a good way to understand them is horizontally, uh, excuse me, horizontally (laughs) and vertically, right? Um, The first four can be understood vertically. That is with respect to our relationship to God. They deal with our relationship to Him. And then the, the, the other six are horizontal. They have to do with our relationship to one another. <clears throat> the first four laws, which are known as the first table of the law, include things like worship the one true God, worship of the one true God, and not worshiping this one true God according to images and not taking His name in vain, and honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy. So you see how these laws refer to our relationship with God, right? They're all given with respect to Him and how we respond to Him. This is the vertical aspect of the law. These four laws are are given and prescribed to show us the proper ways in which we are to approach God. They give us a summary of what God expects from us. And in order for us to maintain a right relationship with God, these laws have to be kept and adhered to. We must understand that uh, God has revealed himself to us in Holy Scripture, and we can't just go and approach him any old way. We must approach him in the ways in which he has prescribed for us to do so. Uh, We cannot create a God in our own image, uh, something to our liking, and just worship him because that is idolatry. That's why God clearly reveals himself to us in the scriptures. We worship a God who has made himself known to us in word, and it is in accordance with that word that we are to know him and to worship him. And sometimes you, you hear people say things like, oh, my God would never do this, that, or the other thing. And when, when you hear that sort of response, you have to ask yourself the question, uh, what God is that that they are referring to? Is it the God of the Bible, that they're saying would never do this, that, or the other thing. And the only way that we can know the answer to that question is by opening up the Scriptures and looking what God says about himself and about our relationship to him. Moreover, God has prescribed the ways in which we are to worship him. You cannot worship the God of the Bible just in any old way. We do not worship God on a whim, uh, uh, thinking, oh, just because it feels right, it must be right. Um, no, you can't, you can't do that. Um, the God of the Bible has been very careful to reveal to us the ways in which he is to be approached because ever since the fall of man, man has sought to pervert the true worship of God. That is what it means to be fallen. You don't worship God rightly. That's what it means. Your intuitions are not right. Your intuitions are flawed because of, thin, uh, because of sin and therefore God must tell us how he is to be worshipped. And so, first of all, in the first table, God reveals to us who he is and how he is to be worshipped. Next, the second table of the law tells us about our relationship to our fellow man. This is to say, it tells us about how we are to correspond to one another on a regular basis, how we are to be in relationships with one another, how we are to deal with one another, how we are to treat one another. In the second table of the law, we find the commandments, honor your father and your mother, do not murder Uh, Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not covet your neighbor's stuff. And we see how all of these laws uh, affect our relationship with one another. It's the horizontal aspect of the law, how we are to deal with the person that we see standing in front of us and around us. And again, all of these laws must be kept in order for us to maintain a um, right relationship with our fellow man. We must respect those that God has placed in Authority over us. We can't, uh, uh, well, we honor our fathers and mothers and then anybody else by implication that God has placed in authority over us. We must respect them. We must honor authority. Uh, we cannot lie to one another. We cannot steal from one another. We cannot hurt one another without doing great detriment to ourselves as a people. Jesus sums up all these laws for us in two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. You see that? All with respect to God and with respect to our neighbor. It's the Ten Commandments in sum. Love God and love your neighbor. As a matter of fact, when he is questioned about what the greatest commandment in the law is, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, and the prophets. Literally, he says it is upon these two commandments that the entire law hangs. law is hanging utterly off of these two commandments. In other words, you can take all of the laws and put them in one of these two categories. You can put them under the uh, heading of either love God uh, or love for neighbor. Paul later tells us that the whole law is literally fulfilled in a single word. Or statement, namely, love your neighbor as yourself. But how can this be? How is love for one another the fulfillment of the entire law? I mean, there are six hundred and thirteen commandments in the Old Testament. How can this one command to love one another be the fulfillment of them all? And by the way, this idea of love is not a new or novel idea with Jesus and with Paul. When Paul and Jesus tell us to love our neighbor, they're quoting Leviticus. That's the Old Testament that they're quoting. Um So love has always been the fulfillment of the law. And you say, how so, Pastor Chris? Well, first we must define love. What is love? Is it just some feeling that we get in our stomach? The butterflies that we feel when we get around our significant other? Is it just some idea? According to the Bible, biblical love is nothing other than keeping the commandments of God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. Love is nothing other than keeping the commandments of God. That's how love is defined biblically. It's obedience. Obedience to what God has told us to do. And what has God told us to do? Love God and love our neighbors. Right? Let me ask you this. Is it possible to love God while at the same time hating your neighbor? Or vice versa? Is it possible to love your neighbor while at the same time hating God? Is it possible to say, oh, I love God, while at the same time sleeping with your neighbor's wife and stealing all of his stuff. Well, no, because when you're doing that, you're breaking the very law that God gave you, which says that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. You're not loving him. Oh, yeah, it's, I love you, God, but I'm doing all this stuff that you told me not to do. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And likewise, one cannot say that they love their, their, their neighbor um, while at, the same, while at the same time hating the God in whose image they are created. At that point, uh, they are loving for the wrong reason, and it's most likely a selfish um, motive or worldly ambition. In short, nobody can love their fellow man r- rightly unless they love God, because men are sinners and their hearts are darkened, and therefore they don't love in the right way. Does that make sense? <clears throat> So you see, the whole law hangs on these two commandments. If you, if you love God and you love your neighbor, you are fulfilling the entire law. As a matter of fact, you cannot do one without the other. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So in closing, we have seen that God has established his covenant with us by his grace. Nobody gets into a relationship with God apart from this grace. He comes to us by his grace and he saves us and therefore it is our duty to serve him and indeed we must serve him. Anybody who says that they have a relationship with God but yet they treat the law of God like a trite thing does not know God at all. You cannot say that you love God and that you know him while at the same time breaking his commandments. By necessity if we are his we will serve him. God has revealed His will to us for our lives, and we must know it, own it, obey it, and walk in it. And the two uh, greatest commandments are love for God and love for neighbor. As a matter of fact, the whole law can be summed up in its entirety in these two, and indeed in one, because love is obedience, obedience to the very commandments that God has told us to keep. So let us love God and love one another, for this indeed is what it means to be Christian. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for revealing your will to us for our lives. We are fallen, sinful creatures, and we do not do that which is pleasing in your sight on our own initiative. We thank you that you have clearly revealed to us the ways in which we are to serve you, the ways in which we are to worship you, and the ways in which we are to deal with our fellow man. Help us to study your word and to glean principles from it so that we might do that better, so that we might know your will for our lives in every single circumstance. For it is in Christ's name we pray, amen.